Okay, with that, let's get into Jonah. Let's pray, and we'll read Jonah chapter 3. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this great story of Jonah, uh, which isn't just a story that's made up, but is a true story of this uh, prophet Jonah, uh, who became a prophet through this story. Uh, I thank you, Lord. Um, Really, the key of the story is understanding that Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. And so, Lord, to see how you uh, moved in his life, Lord, how you moved in the sailor's life, how you moved in the people of Nineveh's lives, um, really through these interactions of these three different groups, Lord, your character, your nature, who you are, um, really bubbles to the story, the top, top of the story. And, and so often this great fish sort of takes center stage. But Lord, we're reminded that you are the center of Jonah and it's uh, your heart and your desire for us in our lives, Lord, that you want to convey to us. And so, Father, we pray that as we navigate this chapter, Lord, that you would help us to understand what was said uh, appropriately in context. Father, that you would help us to translate the the thousands of years um, from when the story took place, Lord, that we would be able to glean applications uh, to our lives uh, from this narrative. Lord, we're thankful uh, for your spirit in our lives. For those who know Christ, we ask that you would guide us now. In his name we pray. Amen. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and said, and it said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We ask for your help now, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so this month, our, our theme uh, sort of to, to focus is Acts 1-8, this great verse that sort of shares the heart of God. Um, I've sort of, you know, I'm not one to twist people's arms, but it's a great verse to memorize, to sort of think of um, how God thinks. 
uh, in the early church as they were getting started, some of the last words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven, he said to them, but you uh, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the outermost part of the earth. And so we see in the early church, if you follow Acts 1-8, it sort of lays out how the book of Acts goes, um, that at first, um, the, the apostles uh, were used by the Spirit of God to so saturate Jerusalem with the gospel that it then spread out to the surrounding areas of Jerusalem or Judea and Samaria, and then to the outermost uh, part of the earth. In many ways, we find ourselves, we are at the outermost part of the earth um, from the original writing. Valley Center is in no, no, nowhere to be even heard of at the time of the writing, and 2,000 years ago, I don't think there was a person that lived here. Um, and, and so God said, by my spirit, I'm going to move through you and you're going to be my witnesses to share the gospel, to share about my heart to the entire world. And this commission that we know of as a great commission to go therefore and to make disciples, this is very much the governing mission statement of, of our church that we exist to make disciples. So if you're here and you don't know Christ, number one step of becoming a disciple is coming to know Christ as your Savior. Then as you are saved, then God begins a work in your own life uh, that lasts a lifetime of becoming Christ-like. And through that process, then he, in his infinite wisdom, which I don't understand, he's then taken us and he says, you now are my ambassadors to go out and to share the gospel with others. It makes no sense to me why God would choose to use us to participate in his plan. And so here, back in Jonah, the same thing is happening in Jonah's life, that the God of Israel has called this prophet to, to go with the good news of God. Um, where do I want to start? Well, let's just start with verse 1 before my, my hockey mind gets wrangled out of place here. Um, <clears throat> so we read very uh, right away. Um, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying. So this is beautiful. The second time, this, this, this idea that God is a God of second chances, really third chances, fourth chances. I could probably go, I... I don't even want to know how many chances God has given me in, in this lifetime. Um, this, this second time that God has spoken to Jonah, um, to recap what has happened, in chapter 1, we get word that, that, jo- that Jonah was sort of spoken to by God to go to Nineveh. Um, from other writings this week, it was sort of interesting to me I, I, I like I knew it, but it, it dawned on me. I said, well, we don't know much about Jonah, which we don't know about Jonah. Um, but it's interesting that he's from Gath Heifer. And if you, if you do a map study of where this is, this is actually in the Galilee near Nazareth. So he's one of the only other, there's like two prophets that the Bible records that come out of this region. Uh, Jonah is one. Can you guess the other prophet that came out of, out of uh, the Galilee? Jesus. Okay. Uh, so so here these two prophets arise, and God tells Jonah, you need to go to Nineveh. It's about 500 miles over to the east to Nineveh. Um, this was a wicked, evil place. Nahum chapter 3 tells us that, that, that as you approach the city, that, that bodies were just 
stacked on the ground. There was execution of children. They hated the Jews. The Jews hated them. It was a very mutual relationship. Um, th- this, this week, if you follow the news even remotely, you'll, you'll, you'll have heard about a major campaign that's happening over um, the city of Mosul, if I'm getting it right, my, I'm blanking, but it's Mosul, Iraq. It's all over the news. ISIS has taken the city. There's a campaign to try to get it back. This is Nineveh. And if you read the news, you'll see like one lady, hey, there's Nineveh plane over there. Um, this city has much of the same implications, like, or the, the situation was very similar then as it is now, just sort of different times, different technologies, different, but, but it was a ruthless city. Um, last week I jokingly said that none of us would, well, I don't think he was even joking, like seriously said, none of us would really volunteer to go walk through Mosul today as ISIS is, is, is basically fighting to, to stay a stronghold and just to walk through and say, hey, in 40 days, God is going to basically demolish the city. Um, now, God hasn't spoken to any one of us to do that, but I think that we would have some of the similar reactions. And so when God said to Nona, to Jonah, um, to go, Jonah said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to go. And maybe he didn't write outright say no, but his actions shouted boldly that he wasn't going to obey what God asked him to do. Some suggest that Jonah was afraid to go. I think it was more that Jonah had um, anger and dislike for the people of Nineveh, and so he didn't want to risk uh, the kindness of God getting to them for fear that they might do exactly what happens in this story. And so Jonah goes down to Joppa, the major seaport. He hops on a boat, going to the farthest place in the known world at the time. It was heading towards, um, towards uh, southern Spain, Rhoda today, uh, Joppa then. He gets on the boat. There's a big storm. He's sounding sleepily there. All of the sailors are sort of freaking out, like, what do we have to do? They begin jettisoning all of their gear. They... They, they chuck all of their gear. The, steers, the, the storm is still raging. Uh, finally, the captain goes below. He finds Jonah sleeping. Jonah, what's going on? And it, it, it sort of comes out that this storm is a, as a result of Jonah's disobedience. Jonah says, if you want the storm to go away, all you have to do is throw me overboard and everything will be fine. So they do that. And as they throw Jonah overboard, we see sort of miracle number one sailors come to faith. As a former sailor, this is a huge deal. Um, these sailors are now making an, an offering to, to the true God. They make a sacrifice. They're worshiping the true God. And Jonah now is swallowed up by the fish. And so we pick up the story in chapter 2. Jonah's in the fish. This great prayer of Jonah's repentance, wrestling with God. Uh, finally, God has done enough of, of, of his work in Jonah's life that he's ready to sort of commission Jonah. So the fish throws up onto the shore, and here we are. This is where our story picks up. There's great speculation over what did Jonah smell like? What was the condition of his skin? Some have suggested that he had stomach acid for three days on him. We have no pictures of Jonah, so we don't know. Um, I do know that I like eating fish, and I like being around fish, because if I'm around fish, that means I'm about to consume fish. I am okay with cleaning fish, and I do know that after you go fishing and you clean some fish, 
you, there's nothing you can do to get rid of that stench on your hands. Like, it's just there. And it doesn't bother me, but a lot of people have, don't like it. And so I imagine if I was inside of a fish for three days, not just cleaning a fish, that I would, <clears throat> would have some fishy odor to myself. And this is where we find Jonah, on the beach, spit out, washed up, sort of like, all right, here we go, God. Um, we see that God is the God of second chances. And he begins um, to speak to Jonah. And I don't, like, just because Jonah had his incident in his fish, now that he's on the shoreline, now that he's made these promises and these deeds, these, these, these promises, these vows to God that he'll do these things, I don't think that it necessarily means that for the rest of his life and the rest of this journey that he's on, that it's going to be easy for him um, to do the things that he said. He still has to walk into Nineveh. He still has to pass all of these bodies. Um, He still has to honor the vows that he made to God. And I believe that that somehow in the midst of of walking forward, pressing on with God, I, I think a lot of what God is is doing in this book is He's working on Jonah's heart, and and in my life when I've struggled to sort of step out and and to honor God, and I'm really wrestling, but I'm like like there's the tug of war going on. Where on one side I'm really trying to please God, but then if you look under the surface, there's a whole bunch of garbage going on. I found in my life that that is when God is most effective at working within me. And I think that, that Jonah, like if we read chapter 3, it just looks like a beautiful chapter. It's like everything goes the way it's supposed to go. But what we don't see is this wrestling match in Jonah's heart, which I actually think is the center stage of this story. And so God's word came to Jonah the second time, and he said to him, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So here, Jonah, he's already been told. I wonder if this is, it almost makes it sound like there's a, a, a different proclamation from the first one that God gave to Jonah. Um, he says, you need to arise, you need to go, continue on your journey. Just because you went through this whole fish incident, that doesn't mean that you're, you're off the hook for the mission that I've given to you. And so Jonah gets up. He begins walking to this city of Nineveh um, where all of the crazy things started happening. And I believe that he, as he's, as he's getting closer and closer to the city, I think that there's this like, what am I doing? How did I get here? Like, what, what? like this is crazy. Like, walking into Nineveh is a terrible place to walk into. He's a Jewish man. He's a prophet. Likely, he's not going to come out alive. And I think that he's fearful, uh, this tug of war is happening, and as I've been pondering this, I'm like, there's got to be something in this chapter, because you could read through this, and there's, there could be nothing here. And a story I've shared a number of times, but not all of you have always been here, and it's really the story of my journey into the ministry. Um, it reminds me of when God began prompting me to head into the ministry, that I had no idea that I was um, heading into to the road, like into the road of becoming a pastor. Uh, it was 2001. I had just gotten back from deployment uh, in June. It was three months before 9-11. While on deployment in the Middle East, 
I, I was into running, and I thought, oh, this would be great. When I get back, I want to run a marathon. I saw in Running World magazine or Running Magazine, there was a full-page ad for this, <clears throat> this marathon in Denver called the Jesus Run Marathon. And at the time, Anna and I were sort of, we were sort of, <clears throat> I don't know if we said we were dating, but, but we ended up getting married the following February. So we were smitten with one another, and <clears throat> I knew... <laughs> that she was a former missionary kid. And so there in Bahrain doing my laps, hey, there's a marathon in Denver to raise money for missionaries. This could score me some points. <laughs> the whole idea of Denver, I mean, I know that they refer to it as a Mile High City, but that didn't really, the dots didn't connect for running a marathon in the Mile High City, how that would work out. Um, I was thinking, oh, it said, hey, you can raise money for missionaries. So I contacted Anna, well, we contacted her, we were in communication. I said, hey, you have any missionaries you know I can support? Because I'm doing this marathon, and we're going to, like, raise all kinds of money for them, and this is going to be, like, really, my heart, <laughs> my heart is really good. And so we, we found, you know, that all worked out on that end, and, and so I start running, and I, when, I, when I got back to San Diego in June, the marathon was in August, and I really needed to, like, up my miles, and so I was living in La Mesa, and I'm running, I was running around. Like I had started a Bible college class, but it wasn't like I was on the track of, of, of ministry. I, um, I was just an active-duty Navy SEAL back, getting ready to go to shore duty. And, and as I'm running laps around La Mesa, so when you train for a marathon, your, your, your training runs need to like get upwards of 20, 22 miles, which you cover a lot of ground, and you, you actually cover you know, 20 miles or so. <laughs> and I'm doing these loops through La Mesa, and I'm seeing all of these old people's homes, like the retirement homes. And when I run, I start thinking about weird things. And so I started feeling like, I thought it was God telling me I was supposed to start a Bible study at one of these old person's homes. I'm like, that's crazy. thought I'm a Navy SEAL. I don't know anything about leading a Bible study. And so the next day when I would do my long run, I would change the route to try to avoid the old person's homes. It turns out there's a lot of old person's homes in La Mesa. And it was like everywhere I'd go, it's like old person's home, old person's home, or old person's home. This went on for like weeks. Finally, it got to the point where on a run, I'm like, I was like Jonah and the fish. It's like, okay, Lord, I'll teach a Bible study at an old person's home. And I'm like, I don't even know how to, like, how, have you guys ever started a Bible study at an old person's home? Like, I, like okay, Joel raises his hand. And I... I'm like, so what's the protocol? Do you walk in and say, hi, receptionist, I'm here to start a Bible study at this person. This. Um, I, and I'm like, okay, well, God's called me to this. I'm going to call his bluff. Like, I think I'm playing poker with God. So it's like, he just wants to see that I'm willing to do it. So my first step is to talk to Anna, you know, I'm trying to score some points. And I'm like, she's just going to shoot it down. You don't have, if you, like, I'm, I'm expecting her to tell me that I don't have a clue about leading a Bible study. And just to kind of go along my merry way with running the marathon, I was just like the endorphins or whatever are steering me the wrong direction. So I asked Anna, I said, hey, I feel like God wants me to lead a Bible study at old person's home. And once you know it, her reaction was like, that's wonderful. I love old people. Let's do it. Do you have a place? I'm like, no, I haven't really thought. Like she had like a worship team lined up, all of these, like all of these people. She's like, let's go. And so then I was like, okay, I, so then I think, okay, there's Jeannie who she ran an old person's home where my grandparents died. And so I called Jeannie. I said, hey, Jeannie, it's Thumper. She always called me Thumper. I, think, I don't think she could remember my name. And I said, I have this crazy thought. I'm supposed to, like, I, you know, 
I feel like God might want me to teach a Bible study in an old person's home. And I pitched this with her expecting to say, oh, there's like HIPAA rules. Like the government won't let you do a Bible study. It's just shut down. That's sort of what I was, I was expecting her to tell me. And she's like, Tuesday night, you're going to start Tuesday night. And it was like Saturday. I'm like, Tuesday night? She's like, yeah, the Shangri-La, I have a house. There's been a lady that's like, that's there. She want like, you're going to start on Tuesday. So I call her back. I'm like, we're starting on Tuesday. I don't know what to do. Like, like what to and I remember I thought I'd take the, I remember like, what do you teach at an old person's home? And I just figured like the, the chapter about worrying, you know, like I'm like, well, old per- they got to be worrying, you know, because they're like, they're getting old and, and I didn't know. So I'm like, I do this chapter on worry from Matthew, but we go to knock on the door and this lady, this 97 year old lady, Maureen opens the door. And she said, I've been praying for like five years that a Bible study could start here. I've called every church and nobody's started. And, and it ended up being like a super sweet time, but I was terrified. And in hindsight, that was really one of the first steps that, that God used to sort of lead me down the road of ministry. Now, it hasn't always been um, easy, um, but I do think, and probably not always, but I think that when God begins to move in our heart, I think often it, he starts with a challenge that's greater than, than we think we're capable of doing, namely because he needs us to know that he's the one that's sustaining us, and he's the one that's driving us, and he's the one um, that's leading us on whatever journey it is that he's, he's, he's calling us into. And so now Jonah, now Jonah conceded to going, but I don't know that Jonah... I don't think it was easy for him. And so here he begins his his journey. And in verse 3 we read, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So he begins walking. He begins heading that direction. Looking for an illustration this week, I stumbled across an old hymn. I think today when we look at hymns and we look at older translations, because they're so removed from our language, we think that people were probably more serious back then than they actually were. But I stumbled across a hymn, and you can tell me afterwards if you've ever heard of it. I've never heard of it, but that doesn't mean much. Um, there's a hymn called Hornets. Has anybody heard of this hymn called, hymn called Hornets? Nobody? I said afterwards. Okay. So this is good. This is hilarious. So there's this hymn. And it talks about stories of Jonah, Moses, and Balaam. And it talks about how God never forced them to do the things that he wanted to do, but God compelled them in such a way that they were willing to go. Let me just read a little bit of a couple of the lines here. Stanza, chorus, whatever, one of the paragraphs. I'm not sure what we call it. I don't know this tune, so I would love to sing it. Like I, so... If a nest of live hornets were brought into this room and the creatures were allowed to go free, you would not need urgings to make yourself scarce. You'd want to get out, don't you see? They would not lay hold and force by their strength, throw you out the window, oh no. They would not compel you to go against your will, but they would just make you willing to go. When Jonah was sent to do the work of the Lord, the outlook was not very bright. He never had done such a hard thing before. So he backed and ran off from the fight. But God sent a big fish to swallow him up. 
The story I'm sure you all know. He did not compel him to go against his will, but he just made him willing to go. He does not compel us to go, no, no. He does not compel us to go. He does not compel us to go against our will, but he just makes us willing to go. I thought that was so hilarious. So there's this old hymn about Jonah, and Jonah is going, but God has sort of positioned his life in a place where he's like, all right, Lord, I'm willing to go and to do whatever you want. This is also familiar with this trip to Africa. Larry was making fun of me about it, that I made halfway. Halfway, I would have stopped at Zurich, which would have been fine. I would have loved to go to Zurich with the boys, had some pizza, had my Coca-Cola, had some, some great European bread, and, and got in the like, hey, you guys are good to go. But I made it all the way down to Africa, which was another 11-hour flight. And I, I really didn't want to go. And there was this, okay, Lord, fine, you've like, You've provided this money through a weird sort of circumstance. You've done this. Like all, like all of these things sort of lined up towards like, okay, I'll go. Like, which I find myself so often with God that he sort of brought the hornets into my life. And it's like, okay, all right. I see what you're doing here. Like I think over the course of my life, I've learned early on to see one like hornet flying in. And it's like, okay, whatever you want, I'll do. You don't have to send them all. Like I'll just go. <laughs> And so, so here, Jonah, God has placed him into this position to where now he's willing to go into this great city, this difficult city, this city of violence, um, and he's heading in. We read, we continue, that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. So there's a lot of like confusion. What does this mean that Nineveh was a, a, a city of three days walk? There's, there's speculation over size, but, but really history doesn't bear out that the city was a city that would take three days to like walk around or to walk through, um, which some suggest um, the, the culture of a great city where, where there was importance is to, to be a, a city, what, what does it say here? A three days walk. What it meant was that upon arrival, your first day, the culture was you had to sort of check in at the city gates. If you were somebody like a prophet, you'd have to declare your business, the things that you're doing. They would get you settled in on that first day. On the second day, you could uh, perform your transaction, do whatever it is that you were there to do. And then on the third day, you could then sort of check out of the city. And so it's, it's believed that this city was likely one of those cities that it took, if you wanted to go do business as a prophet or, 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 a, or a fellow king or something, you had to allot three days in order to sort of uh, do whatever it is that your business is there. And so Jonah enters in, and we're told that on the first day, he, he checks in, but he gets right uh, to business. And he cried out, and he said, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, I'm not sure if this is the... the on one way you can read this and say Jonah just sort of walked through the city over and over and over again saying 40 days the city's going to be overthrown. Um, I don't think that's the case based on their reaction. It seems to be that this is sort of a, a summary statement um, of his ministry while he's there as he's going and he's interacting with people. The, the, the heart of his message was they had 40 days to repent or, or wrath would come upon them. Now everything goes wrong for Jonah. Poor Jonah. Um, 
the equivalent of this is like a street preacher. It'll go down to, you know, I think of those people, you know, God bless them. I'm not wired the same, like I, but every year when we, there's a Christmas on the Prado, as you're going into Balboa Park, there's like thousands upon thousands of people. There's, there's a dear brothers and sisters in Christ who have their signs up telling people to repent. And normally I walk by and I'm like, God bless you guys. Like, God bless you guys. Like, good for you. Like, I, I just don't know. Like, I, I can't say that I'm not wired that way. And I'm not trying to like, talk myself into a hornet to say I'm doing this this year. Um, <laughs> but, but the equivalent, like, I look at them. I'm like, these poor guys, like, God bless them. Like, they're going to take so much abuse tonight. And I'm not really sure the fruit that they're going to see from it. Um, but I think that the equivalent would be like if, if there was one of them on the corner and every single person that descended upon um, the December nights or the Christmas on the Prado, that every single one of them just sort of repents and our whole county um, turns to God and receives him as their savior and their whole lives are changed. Like, this is the sort of impact that God had in this city through Jonah. And, and the last thing that Jonah wants in this whole thing is for this town to actually repent and to receive the mercy and kindness of God. But as he goes through, as he says, 40 days and this city will be destroyed, we read in verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed in God. Key right there. They heard the message. They responded in faith. And they called a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. I can't imagine Jonah's face. I wish there was like a recording of Jonah going in 40 days and you guys will be destroyed. And it's like the domino effect where they all start falling down. Like everybody's now repenting, fasting, like mourning, pleading with God to have mercy on them. Like, and here's Jonah walking through, what is going on? Certainly when it gets to the king, this isn't going to continue. It gets to the king and the king declares a fast for everyone, including the animals, like the, 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 the cows, the sheep, the chickens, like everybody's fasting. I... I, like, I can't imagine what he's going through. And the, the other side of me, I think, how amazing would this be? Like, can you imagine if, if all suddenly, like, we had the, I forget how many, I think we've had two great awakenings in our, in our country historically. But if, like, we entered into a time, I feel like that the, the posture of people's hearts in our nation, like, everything's lining up where, like, there's the skeptimistic side of me. I've merged two words. I'm a pessimist and I'm skeptical. Like, like, I just have a hard time seeing our whole nation just, like, having this great awakening again and repenting and coming back to God. But how awesome would that be if, like, in our, in our, in our community, in Valley Center, San Diego County, the state of California, like, our like, how awesome would that be if this happened 
for us. And I say in my skeptical side, I, when, I, when I hear about people doing mission trips, like, like I'm not the kind of guy that a person goes on a, a weekend mission trip to like the Sudan. They say 17,000 people came to Christ over the weekend. It was really wonderful. I was like, yeah, okay, I don't really buy those. I don't buy those. No, like I have a hard time when there's these astronomical numbers. I, I tend to more side with the missionaries that are there for years and decades, and they say I've had one or two people come to faith in Christ over the course of my ministry. Those are hard-fought-for salvations. But, but in this case, we have Jesus' testimony in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus, as the Pharisees are attacking him, he points to the people of Nineveh during this era. Not A few generations later, Nineveh would fall apart again. Nineveh today, it's, it's, a, it's a city totally opposed to God. But, but the generation that Jonah encountered, listen to what Jesus says about them. He says that the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus says at that great day of judgment, when the generation that stood before him, the Pharisees describes all of those religious leaders that put Jesus to death, who rejected him. He says at the great day of judgment as they are being condemned, it's these people of Nineveh that will stand up and condemn them because they responded, notice, by faith. They believed in the word of God. Belief, not their action. Their belief affected their behavior, but they were saved upon belief. They had faith. They responded to God. It's beautiful that Jesus authenticates what happens here, that this was true repentance, that these people truly had an encounter with God. And I, and I broke up what the king said because I feel like the very last line in verse 9 is critical. I love what he says, how he ends. He says, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Just because they repented, just because they went on sackcloth and ashes in their mourning, their acknowledging their behavior was against God. He says, who knows, God may. There was no expectation on his part just because we click box A that God is obligated to, to click box B. As we enter this political season, one of the things that like, it's always sort of troubled me when I see, and I owned one in the past, but, you know, the big American flag, and then there's Second Chronicles 7.14. You know, if my people who are called by na my name will humble themselves and pray and seek God or seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Like, like so th th that really is poor exegetical work uh, bec because the context there, he's speaking to Israel. There's no promise to the United States. Like, I hate to break it to you guys. We, we do not exist in the Bible. We don't. Like, you can go to your Strong's, look for the USAA, like America, like every single, like, you're not going to find it. And, and so I think there's some of, like, there's been those within the Christian movement who put the Second Chronicles 7.14, and we think, well, if we just do this, then God is obligated then to do this. And it can be a very arrogant position because we are sinners. We have sinned. Our, our nation in particular has had 
from troubling times. Like, and it, it, it's not just the last handful of years. Like, I mean, we, we, our, our nation has always been composed of people, okay? People are sinful. It's not like we had a bunch of saints in 1776 and that we were all without sin. There's a lot of sin in the history of the United States. And I love this king. He says, repent. Humble yourselves before God. Who knows? God's not obligated to do anything for us. He's our creator. We're the created. When you're the created, you're not in a position to dictate anything. And I love the posture of his heart, in which I think when I see these, the great revivals in the United States, it's people falling on their faces, Lord, please have mercy on us. Lord, the fact that you saved me is more than I could have ever, ever asked for or, or more than I ever deserve. The fact that you saved me by the fact that you sent Jesus to the cross to die for my sin, that's more than enough. I stand here in awe of you, period. I don't care what else happens to me. And this king says, who knows, maybe God will, will, will relent from this decree that he can God could have come and decimated Nineveh still and been fine. Like he had, there's no fair, well, we don't want fairness with God, period. And I think that as we call out for God to have this, this humble spirit to recognize, like we are not in a position to bargain. Like our repentance, our turning, our obedience this doesn't obligate God for anything. Now, he says that he's a loving God and he desires, like, but he doesn't owe us. And I think that, that like, it's, it, it might seem like a small point, but it's everything when in our hearts we have true humility, we have true reverence for this almighty, all-knowing God. And the story continues, which is beautiful. Like, I think that in this story, we do see the heart of God and God's character. It says, when God saw their deeds, he turned, and that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of God's nature. We, uh, um, I, I want to make a note, because if any of you are reading out of the authorized version, it, there, there could be a little bit of confu- like potential confusion because language changes over the course. How we understand certain words uh, brings different responses from us. I can't really, or I'll spare you guys the long conversation, but this is one of those. If you're reading out of the King James Version, it says that God repented of the evil for what the New American says that God relented concerning the calamity. Now, that can, that can be sort of confusing. It's like, did God repent? Because in our modern understanding of repentance, you know, the simple definition that sort of dominates the, 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 the times is that to repent is to turn from evil and to change your mind and to do good. Like that you're doing bad, you're in sin, you're turning from your sin and you're going a different direction from your sin. Does God sin? Does God have sin? He doesn't. And and I'm not saying that the King James, like I'm not saying this is a poor translation. I'm just saying since the last 500 years, language has changed. Repent it is a, is, a, is, a cha- is a simple change of, of thought. And it's not really that God changed. What happened is the people of Nineveh changed. That they responded to God's word. They said, we want, we want to change how we're behaving. We're doing evil in the sight of the Lord. 
God sees their change, and so then he holds back his wrath. Um, it, 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 it might seem like a small point, but it's everything. So they turned from their wicked way. God says, you know what? They have changed from their wicked way. We see from the, the testimony of Christ that their change was, was true, was legitimate. And so God says, There's, my wrath isn't going to come upon them any longer. It's beautiful. And today we say, well, like God's wrath is still due us. But Jesus stood in the way of the wrath that was coming for us because of our sin, and he took on the wrath of God. And so now we've been placed in this position of what do you do with Jesus? You can either accept the gift that he has provided by taking on the wrath that was due us, or your default position is you can reject Jesus as the Messiah. We know that God's heart from 2 Peter 3, 9, it's one of the most beautiful passages in the whole of the scripture. It says, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We know that God doesn't want to send people to hell. We know that God loves all of his creation we know that God desires all people to respond to his offer of salvation by faith, by believing God as the people of Nineveh did. And if we stop the story here, this would be a beautiful story. But we would miss everything, and we are stopping here, but I want to to sort of slip into the next verse to show you the underlying problem. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And this word for anger, it's literally the picture of hot coals, like just face of fury. And why is he so angry? Because he hates these people so much. And now God is pouring out his grace upon them. And it's driving Jonah crazy. And in chapter 4, we're going to sort of unpack this, the lesson that God, um, the lesson that God uh, is teaching Jonah. So, it, so in this story, chapter 3 is like, it's just a narrative. Jonah goes there, he preaches, everybody responds. It's a beautiful story. Uh, in this, some sort of application, some things that I think that we need to learn from the story is, n- number one, Character number one on stage. What do we learn from character number one? Character number one is God. In this story, story, we learn that God has a great love for all of the people involved in the story of Jonah. He's working on each of them individually as they need work. The, the, The person who's getting the most amount of tension in this story is actually Jonah, um, who from Jonah, I think the lesson that we learn is that you can go through the Christian life you, you can, from all external purposes, seem like the good Christian kid who's doing everything right. You can even have success in ministry and doing things. But if your heart is rotten and it's all just a big facade, God isn't pleased. And we see that in this story, God is just jacking like a jackhammer away at the hardness of Jonah's heart so that Jonah's heart would be softened and he would actually 
respond to the love and mercy that God is trying to get across to all of the people. And then to the people of Nineveh. Like, what a response. Here, this, this, Jew, this little Jewish guy that's been barfed out of a fish comes wandering across, and he says, God's going to destroy the city in 40 days. They didn't need a big, uh, you know, an, an, an apologetical sort of debate at the, at the local uh, college. Um, they hear and they say, you know what? Because all of us who are humans, human, the fingerprints of God are deep within our soul. Eternity is within us. The law of God is written on our hearts. We have our consciences. Conscience? Collectively, is it consciences? We have all of them together. And he comes, and through their conscience, the Spirit works in them, and they say, you know what? We have sinned against God, and we're hopeless. So the only thing we can do is to respond. And we see that in verse 5, they believed in God. And that's all God is asking us of, of us today is to believe in him. And I would suggest that if you've believed in God, that's for salvation. But once we've experienced this sort of forgiveness, it transforms you. And then God begins to ask you to, maybe it's not so crazy. Maybe he wants you to go, you know, teach a Bible study, the Shangri-La. I don't know. Like, I, like, like all I know is that God isn't just trying to give you fire insurance. He, he wants your whole life, and he's worthy of it. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, Lord, for this great little story of Jonah. It might be small in size, but the, the, the story is extremely powerful. Father, as I examine all of the characters in this story, um, I, I see a little bit of my story in each of them. And, and certainly, we all are Jonah. We all resist you. We, we all receive your grace so easily in our own lives, but when it comes to others, we're not as gracious as you. We're not as loving as you. And so, Father, I pray that you would truly do a work in our lives, Father, that we deep from within our souls, Lord, we would be transformed by your love, by your grace, by your mercy. Father, help us to have your eyes as we engage with the world around us, as we look at our culture. For those on the opposite end of the political spectrum that we think have gone off the deep end, and that could apply to both sides in this election. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes on you, that we would be truly transformed by you, and that as we experience your love, that it would flow out of our lives into all areas, to all relationships, that you would help us, Lord, to be engaging with our neighbors, the people we work with, the people we bump into at the grocery store. Lord, you've called us to be your ambassadors and, and we admit we don't have a clue on how to do this. And so, Lord, we need you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.